0: And it, let's see, oh, we're starting.
1: I'm probably recording right now.
0: And it looks like we are live. So we have a special episode of the Pelican Brief today. It is our first live episode and our first episode with a repeat guest.
1: So you are the first returning guest on the podcast. I'm very honored to be on the first live broadcast and on the uh, first repeat guest. Yeah, so
0: um, I know we're coming up now on almost exactly 24 hours left in the campaign. So why don't you talk us through what the next 24 hours look like?
1: Yeah, so uh, it'll be a a very exciting 24 hours. So uh, I'm grateful that you are here in Chicago, Uh, Bill, saying uh, the operation. but. We'll just be for the uh, next 24 hours uh, trying to reach a lot of voters and remind them one last time to vote uh, for Pastor Chris Butler in uh, the 1st Congressional District. Uh, We'll start with some sleep. Uh, So after I do this, I have one more conversation in the office uh, and then I'm gonna go home and rest so I can get up, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I'll go vote and then go out and talk to voters uh, all over the district, we'll start. In the northern part of the district, we'll go all the way down to the southern part and work our way back up again uh, all day tomorrow. And while I'm doing that, there are going to be uh, literally hundreds of volunteers um, making phone calls uh, from all over the country, um, knocking on doors around the district and uh, passing our information at uh, a couple hundred polling places uh, throughout the district. just getting the word out and reminding people to to make their vote and in uh, 24 hours and two minutes the polls are going to close and we'll start tallying up those votes.
0: And so obviously you know you mentioned the voter engagement there Um, and I'm aware that the campaign has been using some deliberative polling practices Mm -hmm. where you pull people in from the district and have them talk to each other um, and deliberate about issues and try to see where that common ground is. Can you talk a little bit about that process and why you chose to do that?
1: Yeah, so we chose to do that in the campaign uh, because it's something that I wanna do uh, as a member of Congress. Uh, And if folks don't know about deliberative polling, uh, it is essentially a way to get a representative group uh, from a large uh, sort of sample like a A modern congressional district um, together for real conversation and we did uh, something like this around uh, the issue of public safety and uh, it was very interesting a lot of people from a lot of different places learned um, how much we have in common and they have in common even though uh, they live in different parts of this district Uh, I think this is really important because the uh, the size of a congressional district geographically and the number of people that a member of Congress uh, is asked to represent uh, has grown tremendously you know since the, the the body was conceived and so you have to start to think about ways you know to, to really get an ear out to a lot of people in the district so uh, this first congressional district has you know Uh, South Loop, you know, so more downtown Chicago, uh, a lot of really inner city neighborhoods throughout the south side of the city. Uh, You have suburban areas, you have industrial areas, you have some rural communities. Um, And so all these different types of people in the district and how do you listen to people from all these different types of places and is a relatively large geographical footprint. Uh, Deliberative polling is one way uh, to help us do that and it's a little bit more um in depth than, say, you know, like an email survey uh, or something like that, which might get some response, but is not necessarily representative.
0: And as a follow up to that, were there any particular results from those deliberative polls that you found interesting or surprising?
1: Um, probably the, the biggest uh, thing that I remember uh, is the shift over the course of the conversation. Uh, people came into the conversation, different ones really locked into uh, a position, you know, very anti-police or maybe very, very pro-police, um, you know, very much against kind of using dollars to invest in uh, prevention and intervention strategies, you know, public dollars to do those things, uh, or super, super for it. And over the course of the conversation, you saw uh, a shift where people came closer to one another, and so by the end of the day, uh, you really began to see uh, the kind of uh, we did this very early in the campaign, um, and, and and what I came away with was uh, kind of a broad view that this district um, sort of reflects the public safety uh, platform that I run on, which is you know supportive of police, serious about law enforcement, uh, but. Also, counterbalancing that with investment in uh, prevention and intervention strategies. Uh, and you know, I think that's why I've got the support of the Fraternal Order of Police and one of the leading uh, sort of reform advocates in the city of Chicago, uh, because my campaign has really tried to bring both of those ideas into balance and show that they are not in contest with each other, uh, but they actually work together.
0: So speaking of issues that you're running on, a couple of months ago you published an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune about basic income. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a big issue that Andrew Yang ran on in the 2020 primary in the Democratic yep. Party. Can you talk about your vision for basic income and like what you would like to see around that issue?
1: Yes, indeed. So the way it, one of the things I like about universal basic income is that there are a lot of uh, sort of philosophical ways to get to it. Um, you know, went on uh, the Huckabee Show, uh, who is somebody who gets to basic income probably differently from me or Andrew Yang. Uh, But I think a lot about uh, economic development, economic opportunity uh, for working class families and working class communities. Most of what we have seen in terms of uh, attempts at government stimulation of economic development and economic opportunity has been very top down. Uh, You know, so some kind of block grants or, uh, you know, all types of things that trickle down through levels of government, different organizations and all those types of things and as opposed to ultimately through some, you know, some method, you know, cultivate economic opportunity. Uh, And I've just experienced over my life that that top-down approach to economic development doesn't work. and what I know we do have, because this is where I do live, it's where I do my ministry, it's where I do my organizing, uh, is that we have really hardworking people. We have great small business owners. We have people who have great ideas and, and a lot of capacity to, uh, to start businesses and do different things. They just don't have access to that capital. And so while universal basic income would lift the poor, and I think that's important, um, one of the things that it will do is, is actually stimulate economic opportunity for working class families. Uh, so that, that couple that has this business idea, has the, the capacity to do it, but maybe doesn't have access to that capital, um, instead of having to work through some program that's coming through six layers of government and then a bank, um, could actually just set aside you know, a few dollars every month. And after a year or two years, they would have the, the money that they need to, you know, to realize the business idea. Um, folks will be able to uh, more easily, uh, you know, buy a house, uh, do different things. Right? So I think that my main view of the basic income uh, is that it actually not only does it lift the, the very uh, poor, it, it stabilizes and creates opportunity uh, in working class. Uh, families and communities and um, one other
0: issue that I wanted to touch upon is the issue of abortion Mm -hmm. so the Dobbs decision came out Friday overturning Roe v. Wade and I think this is a very pivotal moment for the pro-life movement you know we have an opportunity to plan and execute what the next steps are or we can be the dog that caught the car right and so what I would really like to know is what your vision is for the next steps in addressing the abortion issue in a holistic way.
1: Yeah, I think this is probably um, maybe the most significant thing uh, for uh, folks who will be listening to this podcast, who have participated in uh, the American Solidarity Party, the whole life movement, you know, the work that I do with the AN campaign, um, because we need more than ever whole life advocates driving this car. Now, I, I think that there's a tremendous amount of work that has been done inside of the pro-life movement uh, to prepare us for this moment. Uh, many, many, many more people inside of this movement uh, understand and are vocal about the fact that uh, pro-life does not just mean protecting life in the womb. It absolutely does mean protecting life in the womb, uh, but it means thinking about the the sanctity of life and the quality of life um, at every stage of life. And so There is uh, a, what I call a very reasonable fear uh, right now in the country. Um, There are folks who are reacting to messages that they have heard. Um, You know, all of us, when something happens that seems, you know, uh, important, have the capacity to sort of envision the very most negative sort of uh, Outcome possible, and so there's a reasonable and logical fear in the country. And what we need in the pro-life movement is people who have been vocal about um, protecting life in the womb to be very vocal, even through you know we'll get criticized, um, we'll get uh, pushed aside. Uh, some you know folks uh, who agree with us on things like universal health care, who agree with us on making sure that we have access to quality affordable housing, um, that we get paid family leave. Uh, Even folks who agree with us on those issues for a while because of what people are going through. Um, And even if it is, you know, kind of hyped up thing and and it's still a reasonable fear, And so for a while, we will be criticized, we will be pushed aside, uh, but we need to uh, take the high road uh, we need to get into the places where we can get in and work really hard to make sure that we're pushing harder than anybody for uh, some kind of uh, universal health care. They're pushing harder than anybody uh, to close the income gap. We're pushing harder than anybody. Um, and I'm talking about the income gap between men and women. Uh, make sure that we get quality affordable housing, um, that we have child care, that we have um, you know, paid family leave, all those things that make... Uh, life sustainable, not just protected inside the womb, but make it sustainable at every stage. We should be pushing harder than anybody on that. Uh, and I think as we do that, uh, one of my favorite scriptures uh, in the Proverbs says that by uh, steadfast love and faithfulness iniquity is atoned for. Uh, We've got to move around and get the light back on. Um, so this uh, this decision from Roe, the decision itself uh, is not iniquity. Um, but there are a lot of people in this country who really, genuinely feel that an evil uh, has been done to them, uh, and I think the best way uh, for us to move forward uh, is to really roll up our sleeves and get to work um, helping to realize these things that we know are very important um, to that that broader idea that we embrace, which is protecting uh, the sanctity and the sacredness of life uh, at every stage of life. from. Uh, you know, from conception to natural death. And as a pastor, what would you
0: say to a young woman, or a father or mother of a of a young girl who are having experiencing that what you what you call reasonable fear? How would yeah. you how would you pastor to that person?
1: Yeah, it's it's actually uh, funny that you should ask because I had a conversation like this uh, on yesterday uh, because pe- people think that you know. Uh, everybody uh, who's, you know, in church thinks one way about everything. And if you're in church, then you know that's not true. There's people outside of church who think that. Um, and, and so I had a conversation. I had a, a woman come up to me uh, after church on on yesterday. It would be yesterday, right? Today's the Monday, yes. Um, a long Monday. Uh, but, yeah, somebody came up to me after church on, on yesterday and was asking me help me, pastor, help me, work through this. Um, and, and here's what I said. Uh, when we have um, to deal with the idea of, of a life inside the womb, uh, it can be traumatic, especially if you're in a difficult situation. right? Uh, it's, it can be hard to carry the baby to term. It can be hard to give birth to the baby, especially um, when you're looking at, you know, I only got six weeks, you know, I, I work, uh, I don't, don't want to go into a, a whole bunch of detail on it because I don't want somebody trying to triangulate and figure out who I was talking to in church. But, you know, if somebody's looking at, you know, I've only got six weeks, you know, to get back to work, my work is demanding. Um, you know, I only get paid so much uh, in, my, in my job uh, and it can be terrifying. Uh, what I said to the woman on yesterday, what I've said to women before in council uh, is don't underestimate the trauma of knowing that, uh, that you did terminate the pregnancy, right? That seems like um, you know, the easy thing to do. and There's so much pressure to do it that way. Um, but you should at least, I, I counsel, at least have some conversations with other women uh, who have... Had abortions um, and, and think through that with them uh, and let's start thinking about how we go forward in this culture so that we can avoid this conversation because it just it was the same thing on yesterday that it has always been uh, in every experience that I've had uh, you you don't have somebody who's like uh, I don't want to have a baby you have somebody who's saying I can't have a baby and when you really listen deeply, what you hear is that they feel restrained because they live in a completely rigged system. Uh, and they don't have access to healthcare, they don't have uh, access to enough income, they don't have access to childcare and all the things uh, that would make the, uh, the life with a child sustainable. Uh, and so the long-term work that we have to do uh, is to change our culture. And, and and that is why you know I think we have to call out you know we've seen uh, all these companies in the last you know just over the weekend all of a sudden you know folks are like well we're going to put up whatever money needs to be put up uh, to help women travel and get uh, you know an abortion if they want to have an abortion none of these companies are changing their paid leave policy none of these families are up I mean these companies are extending uh, you know more health benefits. None of these companies are like, we're going to raise the wages of all the women who work at this company, you know, by 5%. Uh, but we'll put up money for an abortion. Uh, and that's, that's where I think the whole life movement has to really insert itself because there is some profound dissonance there. Um, and we have to call it out. We have to uh, help people see... Um, where we're going. And we will have to call out people in the pro life movement, right? Like, there will be people who will want to ignore that reasonable fear uh, and not be compassionate toward it. Uh, there will be people who want to um, just regulate abortion and, you know, who will be comfortable using uh, the arm of government to. Uh, to limit abortion but uncomfortable using the arm of government uh, to extend health care and housing um, and and you know the other kind of things that we've been talking about here. So we got a lot of work to do. Um, we're going to be taking it on both sides but uh, that is uh, the thing that we are called to in this moment and it is the kind of leadership that we need. All
0: right well I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule today um, and Please uh, go ahead and let people know how they can support the campaign as we go into this last 24 hours here.
1: Yes, indeed. If you're watching this before 7 p.m. on uh, Tuesday, Central Time on Tuesday, uh, then you can go to electchrisbutler.com and you can sign up right there to make calls. Uh, Somebody will get back to you within minutes and get you on the phones uh, making some calls. You can make a contribution there. Uh, in fact, don't, if, if you wanna make a contribution, even if it's after seven o'clock, go ahead and make a contribution uh, because we are trying to put as many workers and materials uh, in uh, the uh, the streets of this district uh, on the polling places, on the doors uh, so that we get the vote out as much as possible. So go to electchrisbutler.com uh, and uh, let's push this thing all the way across the finish line. Uh, I'm sitting here live with Bill Fleming right here in Chicago because he made it here uh, to, uh, to do this, to help out, and uh, really encourage everybody uh, to do whatever you can. Uh, if you, if you if you're like hearing this and you're in Indiana, get in your car, come to Chicago, help us do this, and get this done. Because uh, it's, it's a very important election. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited and we, we want to work hard all the way to the last the last second. All right. Thank you
0: very much, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. And thank you to the viewers um, who are listening right now. We appreciate you and we will see you next time.